So, so hey, I want to welcome Frederick Johnson, the founder, CEO of Race of Champions. This is like one of the best sporting events ever in the world. Uh, I'm not sure if people know as much about it. So what I, I think would be helpful, I'm going to just hand it off to Frederick and just, can you maybe share with the audience, you know, what it's all about, how this all works? So uh, Race of Champions, we bring together the, some of the best drivers in the world from Formula One, from Le Mans, from IndyCar, NASCAR, extreme sports, and we make them compete on identical cars. And so it's only driver skill that determines who wins. And, and it's head-to-head -head racing. And traditionally, we used to uh, rebuild uh, or build racetracks in some of the most prestigious uh, stadiums in the world. We were in Wembley Stadium when they reopened in 2007. We went to Persons Olympic Stadium in China a uh, year after the Olympic Games for the first big event there after the Olympic Games. We were the first big international event in Saudi Arabia where women were allowed in the stadium, actually. Uh, lots of funny stories to tell about that, but the country has transformed so much since since then. And so, you know, really we're trying to give the best drivers in the world a level playing field and an opportunity to meet and have an, an incredible time together. And, and the fans seem to love it. So it's growing every year. Now, is it fair to say it's kind of sort of like in baseball here in the U.S., where you have the all-star game and you have the best who come and play, or the Pro Bowl, where you have the best football players? Is that kind of similar, or is this a whole different thing? So I think yes, to a certain extent, but I think that this is a lot more competitive. You know, once the race driver is put on the helmet and it's head-to-head -head in identical cars, no excuses, you can't say that, you know, he had a better car than me. It's, it's dead serious competition. I think a little bit more than some of those all-star games in baseball or in, in football. You know, I'm glad you said that because I was binging videos about past races and the vibe seemed to be where everybody was just like having fun. So maybe that's the outside. That's, I guess, what they show on TV, you know, all the, not behind the scenes where everyone is really stressing out. So is that a little different than, let's say, Formula One, where when I watch it, like you see everyone's like really stressed looking, really anxious? Yeah. So I think the big difference is that we provide the race cars. And so the atmosphere is super relaxed when they're not racing. But as soon as the helmets come on, it's dead serious racing. But once they get out of the cars, they don't have to sit with the engineers trying to figure out how to gain a fraction of a second of, of performance. You know, they're, they're having fun uh, with each other. And uh, in Formula One, it's really so serious. Uh, you know, once you're out of the car, they're spending the evenings with the engineers trying to find that extra edge and so on. And, and also the fact that we've got uh, this unique parallel track. The cars race the exact same piece of track, um, but they never hit each other. So you never have the, the situation like you do in Formula One when drivers get upset with each other because they think that this guy took me out on purpose. Here it's really clean. It's just the pure speed of each driver that determines who wins. So it creates a fantastic atmosphere uh, once uh, they're out of the car and, and together in the driver's lounge. And I think that also is one of the few opportunities they have to meet people that they're watching on TV and admiring on TV because the Formula One guys are watching the IndyCar races, the Le Mans races, 
the World Rally races, and, and vice versa. And here is their unique opportunity to get together and, and get to know each other and have a good time. But how did you pull that off? Because thinking about it as you're talking, I mean, that's a huge undertaking to get people from all these different teams, all these competitive companies, everybody is like, they want to win. And then you are able to bring them together. No, I, I was very fortunate to build up some, some very strong friendships as a journalist in the World Rally uh, uh, scenario. And, and that then led to one thing uh, who led to another. And then we had Michelin as a title sponsor for many years. And they invited over their race drivers and to celebrate. And all the racing drivers said, hey, we want to compete. We want to be part of this. So then we opened up, we created um, the, the concept of the Rock Nations Cup, where national teams compete each other, against each other and to determine the world's fastest nation. And that just opened up the event. Uh, initially, it was just rally drivers. And then it became uh, an event for all uh, forms of motorsport. And it's just grown since then. And I think that now we've, you know, most of the stars that are racing today grew up watching Race of Champions and dreaming about one day uh, being part of it. And the example is Sebastian Vettel, four-time Formula One world champion, for example. When he started in Formula One in 2007, we invited him to Race of Champions at Wembley Stadium in London. And I remember standing there with Sebastian uh, in Wembley Stadium and he goes, Frederick, I've been watching Race of Champions all my life, dreaming about one day being uh, invited. I can't believe I'm so young and I'm already here. So I told him, Sebastian, I'm going to invite you every year. And he said, okay, Frederick, I'll come every year. So I said, let's shake hands on it. And Sebastian goes, but wait a minute. What if I get married the same weekend as Race of Champions? And I told him, Seb, come on, you can pick another weekend for your wedding. He said, you're right. Let's shake hands on it. And we shook hands. And you know, he reminded me of that uh, after he won his second world championship title. And um, you know, he came in. We were in Dusseldorf that year, and he came in to the hotel as I was walking out of the elevator. He had a bunch of paparazzi around him. So he gave me a hug, and I said, okay, I'll come up with you in the elevator. And he goes, Frederick, by the way, I haven't forgotten our agreement. And, you know, it's just like these drivers, they, they keep coming back because they love it. And they, you know, it's word of mouth. So one driver speaks to the other and, and, and tells them how much fun it is. And, uh, you know, most of the drivers really like coming and coming back. In the early days, I'd imagine it had to be challenging where you're going to go to this huge stadium and say, OK, we're going to retrofit this whole stadium to be, you know, to race cars. And uh, just thinking about it, the insurance costs you know, the labor costs, you know, everything like it, you, you're so relaxed about it because I guess this is 30 years later, but I imagine when you first started it, that had to be like really tough to get everyone to buy in. No, or like, or they just love the concept yeah. that they just got aboard. No, no, I can, I can tell you some funny stories. So when we first uh, did the agreement with Wembley stadium, when they had reopened in 2007, we'd been in contact with their business development team for, for a few years, but uh, the building took a lot longer than they had expected and was a lot more expensive than they had expected. So we had, in, in principle, agreed terms with the business development team, but then it was final meeting with the chief operating officer and CEO and so on. So I come in there for that meeting, which is supposed to be a done deal. And the chief operating officer goes, you know, I love the event, think it's fantastic. But as you can understand, you know, we've just spent now uh, almost a billion pounds on this stadium 
we can't take the risk to bring in cars here. And, you know, I said, so why, what is the problem? And he goes, well, imagine if a car crashes and goes into the spectators and, you know, hurts some spectators. I said, okay, we've been doing this now for quite a while. And we've never had a car go over our uh, concrete barriers uh, that surrounds the track. And on top of that, then you have the, um, the actual elevation up to the grandstands. You've got the fences and so on. Yeah, but you know, he said, there's no way, you know, you know, it can happen. I can't take the risk. I hope you understand that. So I go, okay, what about if we don't sell any tickets on the lower level? And when the stadium is a 90,000 capacity and the lower level is 20,000 capacity. So with 70,000 tickets, we've got more than enough. And he goes, oh, well, uh, he starts testing and say, you don't think that a car is gonna go over the concrete barrier over the security fence, up whatever 20 <laughs> meters that is. He said, no, I agree with that. But anyway, we can't do the event. I said, why? Well, imagine when you're refueling the cars, if you know we would have a fire. I mean, we just spent almost a billion pounds on the stadium, we, we can't take the risk. So, okay, so refueling is the issue. So ask them, where's the closest um, the filling station? And he goes, there's a BP station about a mile away. So perfect. Then we'll, we'll take the race cars down to the BP station. It's the, actually became our partner afterwards. And we filled them there. And he goes, can you actually do that? I said, no problem. 90% uh, of the cars can run on the high octane uh, uh, fuel at the, at the, from the petrol station. So he had no more excuses. So in the end, we signed the contract and we did 2007, 2008 race with champions there. We found solutions for everything. We, in the end, we blocked the 10 first rows for security. We didn't have a car ever going over the guardrail inside the, uh, the track. And we found a good, safe refueling spot in the stadium. And we ran the event without any issues. But uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's my philosophy. There are no problems, only solutions in life. And uh, sometimes you have to look hard how to find them. So, you know, I, I was going to bring that up. I mean, it's a great leadership lesson for people. And one of the things, Frederick, about this podcast we, we're trying to do, and I think Alejandro referenced that you know, earlier before we went live is that, you know, how we could give advice to people for their careers, you know, whether, whether they work for a company or whether they want to become an entrepreneur, it's that attitude. So I love how you told the story because it's like, you didn't give up. You, you, there's an objection. You address the objection, you overcome the objection and you ask for the order. And then you keep, then they give you another objection. You don't let it bother you. You smile. You're happy about it. You don't get angry. You overcome it and keep going. That's kind of like a like a superpower, right? Like not to not to give up, not to lose, you know, you know, not to give up on your dream, and even against the odds, just to kind of keep trying, right? I think that when you truly believe in what you do, right. um, it, it's easy to convince people. And you know, once again, in, in those situations, you have to think on your feet. But you know, th there's no doubt in my mind that we've got an, an event and an organization that delivers that in a very safe way. So it's easy for my, me to find the arguments uh, to convince them why, why um, it is something that they should go along with and, uh, and do. For people who want to watch the race and follow it, how can they watch the race? How can they follow it on TV or YouTube? or So they can really get this, the, the folks who don't know about it, how they can kind of really get immersed into what's going on. 
So I think, first of all, you know, check out racingchampions.com, uh, Racing Champions on Instagram, Twitter, and so on. Uh, for the live race, anywhere you are in the world, you can watch it live. And uh, so in the US, it will be on live on Mav TV. Uh, in those parts of the world where it's not live on a terrestrial uh, broadcaster, you can watch it live uh, on streaming on Race of Champions YouTube channel as well. So uh, go ahead, check that out. There's a lot of very, very cool content, especially now from the snow and ice here. <laughs> Freddie, this might sound like a weird question, but were your parents, were they entrepreneurs? Were they business people? Yeah, so uh, my mother is a school teacher and um, has changed the lives of many people. I'm walking around with her in, in, in Sweden where she lives. You know, you see so many kids that are no longer kids, adults coming up to her. Oh, Kirsten, and they're so happy to see her. And like parents, said, and my father was a, a salesperson and salesman, and uh, yeah, okay. but not, not really entrepreneurs. So uh, I think well, sales that, I, is sales. Like I would put it as kind of entrepreneurial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree. I agree with you. But I, I think I was born as an entrepreneur. I was born for export from Sweden when I was six, seven years old. You know, I had a weekly allowance of one Swedish crown which didn't add up to much. Um, I managed to negotiate it up to 125 <laughs> by stopping these sugary cereals. So to be able to, to buy a few more uh, candy and things that I wanted, I came up with the idea to sell all my toys that I were no longer using. So I, I wrote like Tombola tickets from one to 100 and I sold them to the kids in the neighborhood and they, I allowed them to pay with the return bottles and I made like 60 Swedish crowns, so more than a year's weekly allowances for me. Then the problem was that some of the neighbor's parents came and complained to my mom, <laughs> mom and dad, saying that their kids had taken their return bottles, so they yeah. made me give back quite a few. But in the end, I, I had like uh, 40 weeks of weekly allowances, and, and uh, you know, I put aside half, and I uh, went and invested the other things in, in candy and other things that I felt was important at the time. You, it, it, it makes so much sense now. And the reason I was asking, because I, I think there is a big difference in sometimes how people are raised. Like, let me give you an example. My parents, my, my dad was a teacher and he was very conservative. And when I'm hearing your story, in my mind, I would hear my parents, oh my gosh, you're going to kind of race in the stadium. You're going to race in the ice. People will get hurt. Uh, like that would be, if I came to them and said, here's my business uh, you know, idea, they would be horrified, horrified. But if your dad was a salesperson, he knows how to you know, knock on doors, get no for an answer, keep trying, you know, doing all that things. And it rubbed off on you. So you grew up feeling like, oh, this is doable. I can do it without having that, in back of your mind, oh my God, oh my God, you can't do this. This could happen. This could, like the person Wembley Stadium, the person who had that job. And in a way, that person was probably suited for the job because they're risk averse. They want to make sure what could go wrong because I don't want anything to go wrong because then I'll lose my job and people could lose yeah. their lives. That has a completely different mindset, which is important for their job. Absolutely. Yours, you have a, you're like, your attitude is like, let's make this happen. You know, yeah, let's, exactly. let's, and, and you're, you're taking it for granted, Frederick, but looking from the outside, this is nuts. He's like, okay, let's take drivers from every different kind of, you know, platform everywhere, right? The best of the best, huge egos, bring them into like whatever country, no matter what the weather, build this, build the track and race. 
that's that's like enormous undertaking. That's crazy huge. Yeah, no, I think that you know I was very lucky because my parents completely trusted me to do yeah. you know whatever I wanted. I started uh, earning my own money very very young, and um, so like all the trips uh, I, I paid for myself when I was fifteen. Uh, I decided with a friend to to go um, uh, into railing with on the trains around Europe for a, a month. My parents weren't thrilled about it, but you know I paid for it myself with money I'd earned uh, working selling newspapers and and, and other things. So it was always, you know, one thing leads to another in life. And when I was 15, so in, in Sweden, when you're 15, um, all kids need to do two weeks of work experience. Um, and, you know, mostly kids wind up in grocery stores being more or less exploited and, you know, pushing around uh, things in, in the storage and so on. And so I went up to the president of the basketball club where I was playing, who used to work for the biggest Swedish and quality daily newspaper. And I introduced myself and asked if I could do the work experience there. And a few weeks later, I saw him again, went up again and uh, reminded him. And in the end, uh, you know, he said, yeah, we don't do that anymore. But I spoke to the boss and if I look after you, he said, it's okay. And then when I started the work experience in the morning, I was there, of course, super early on Monday morning. And the big boss, the door was locked and everything. And the big boss comes in and he looks at me and he goes, no, who are you? And I reintroduced myself and he said, oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. No, you're your friend. Uh, I sent him on a mission abroad. So it's just you and me, kiddo. Okay, you can do this. Finish that. Oh, you finished that. Oh, then do that. Oh, you finished that. And he gave me a long, long, long telegram. And he said, I want a summary, two sentences, maximum three for tomorrow's paper from this. So I wrote that, gave it to him. And he said, hmm, that's not bad, kiddo. Take all of these uh, 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 telegrams and give me summaries, similar style, two, three sentences. Oh, you finished that too. Okay, so the next day, okay, can you call this guy and do an interview? I did that. Okay, they published it. So, okay, on Saturday, you take a photographer and you go cover this basketball game. It published again. So after two weeks, they brought me in that they paid me. Uh, and they asked me if I wanted to work uh, summer holidays and, and weekends. And so I went on to become the, the youngest full-time employed the journalist at, at this, you know, Svenska which is, it was voted by Gannett as one of the 20 best uh, quality papers in the world, along with Washington Post, The Times, and so on. And uh, that's where I went up, found uh, covering Formula One and World Rally around the world as a, as a young man. Amazing. And did you have any experience writing, or you just... So that's another... That's another I, had, I, had a very good, I had a very good Swedish teacher, and yeah. that forced us to learn new vocabulary every week and i'm very grateful for that so you threw in big words that made you look smart <laughs> and you compensated for not really knowing how to write but wow this guy has a really good vocabulary he must be smart let's give him some more responsibilities <laughs> all thanks to that swedish teacher and you know so i always find that yeah. when you come through those challenges there's something better around the corner so nothing bad that doesn't bring something good with brilliant what a great way to end up perfect well thank you so much that's it for The Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.